Our first reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Let's read this together. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Jesus' agony in the olive orchard provides a vivid example of the paradox of his person. Now, a paradox is a statement that seems contradictory, but is in fact true. And the Bible has numerous examples of paradox. Strength through weakness. Exaltation through humility, receiving through giving, freedom through service, gaining through losing, living through dying, are just some. On first reading, they don't sound quite right, but in Christian experience, we discover that they are true. In the garden, on the one hand, we see Jesus' natural human desire for the support and companionship, especially in prayer, from his friends, together with the recognition that his will could be distinct from his Father's. Not my will, but thine be done, he prays. On the other hand, even in the depths of his pain, he spoke to God in the unique intimacy of the address 
Abba, Father, my dear Father, we might say. But what was his distress? The Greek words deserve to be more vividly translated than they are in the NIV. Another translation puts it like this. Horror and anguish overwhelmed him, and he said to them, My heart is ready to break with grief. And Luke alone adds, with his medical perspective, that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus referred to his coming ordeal as a cup from which he had backed off from in dread. Was it simply the dread of death? Socrates met his end in prison in Athens in a very different mood. He drank his cup of hemlock, Plato wrote, without trembling, very cheerfully and quietly. So was Socrates braver at the point of death than Jesus? Well, no, all the evidence is against this. Jesus' physical and moral courage had not for a moment wavered. So in that case, the contents of the cups must have been different. The cup that Jesus ardently longed to avoid was neither the physical pain of crucifixion nor the mental anguish of desertion by his friends, but the spiritual horror of bearing the sins of the world. You see, in the Old Testament, the cup was a regular symbol of God's wrath. For example, Isaiah described Jerusalem after its destruction as having drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. From the agony in the garden, Jesus emerged with a resolute determination to go to the cross. And although the Apostle John doesn't include an account of Gethsemane in his Gospel, he does include a saying that the other evangelists do not. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me. Let us pray. Almighty God, you see that we have no power of our own to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, so that we may be defended from all ills that may befall the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 to 56. Um, Please follow the scripture as I read. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say, it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Here we watch the unfolding of this plot to betray Jesus. The whole story illustrates the interweaving of divine purpose and human action in the providence of God. Coming out of his ordeal in the olive grove of Gethsemane, Jesus is clear in his mind that there is no alternative to the cross and he is surrendered to it in his will. What shall I say, he asks. Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, the Apostle John reports. So Jesus is ready for the next stage in this drama. And a detachment of armed soldiers sent by the chief priests and led by Judas arrives at the garden. Unlike them, Judas knew where on that uh, hillside outside of the city, where Jesus and his band would rendezvous. There would have been tens of thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand people camping out there because it was Passover. And Judas knew where to lead the soldiers. And he had given them a prearranged signal of a kiss so that they in the darkness could recognise Jesus and arrest him. Jesus' only protest was that he was not leading a rebellion like so many previous messianic pretenders had done. He says he was daily teaching them in the temple courts where they could have easily have arrested him then. But Peter was in no mood to submit to Jesus' arrest. As at Caesarea Philippi, so here he still rejected 
the concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die. And this time he didn't just take issue with Jesus. He took the impetuous action. He drew his sword, slashed the right ear of the high priest's servant. Now Jesus told him to sheath it and added, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? The Roman Empire had 28 legions at this particular time. Each legion would have had 5,000 troops. He's saying, at a click of a finger, my father could send me 12 legions of angels, 60,000 angels, to take on this platoon of, say, 30 guards. But then he says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way. It is most impressive to see Jesus deliberately putting himself under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. He must, it says, the meaning meaning absolutely necessary. He must be betrayed, arrested, rejected, condemned and ultimately killed. And why must those things take place? Because the scriptures say so. Let us pray. Grant, almighty God, that we who deserve to be punished for our evil deeds may by your grace and mercy be spared through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen third reading is from the Gospel of Mark, verses 53 to 65 of chapter 14. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed at the distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. 
and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. We've just heard that the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. Scholars are still debating some of the details of the four trials that Jesus endured before Annas, Caiaphas, Herod and Pilate. It does seem clear, however, that he was taken straight from Gethsemane to a late-night informal and preliminary hearing by the Jewish leaders chaired by Annas, who, we are told, was himself an ex-high priest and the then current high priest Caiaphas's father-in-law. Annas's reputation was that he was a covetous old man who had made himself rich by the commercial abuse of the temple. Jesus was interrogated about his followers and about his teaching, but he declined to answer the questions put to him on the grounds that his words and deeds were already well known. Next, probably early on the Friday morning, Jesus was brought before a plenary session of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court responsible for political, legal and religious affairs in Jerusalem. And the purpose of this meeting was to formulate an accusation against Jesus that could be submitted to the Roman court presided over by Pontius Pilate. Pilate would not be interested in trivial ecclesiastical offences against Jewish law, but only in revolutionary claims that might threaten public security. So Caiaphas, who as high priest presided over the meetings of the Sanhedrin, directly challenged Jesus on whether he was the Messiah. In response... Jesus not only affirmed, I am, which is the very name of God in Hebrew, but he quoted messianic passages of a divine visitor from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. He claims that they are fulfilled in him, and in so doing, He is claiming to have universal rule and to share the throne of God. So no wonder Caiaphas accused him of blasphemy and in their regime deserving of death. So Jesus, while refusing to answer frivolous questions, courageously affirmed his messiahship before the highest Jewish court in the land. Let us pray.
Almighty and everlasting God, who in your tender love towards mankind sent your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, so that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also have, and also have our part in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our next reading is from John chapter 18, verses 28 to 38. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But but we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were... My servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. We look at the trial before Pilate. Rome had a worldwide reputation for the justice of its law courts. And it's in keeping with its impartial legal procedures that the session began. Pilate asked what charges Jesus' accusers were bringing against their prisoner. And in reply, the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of three things, three offences. Of subverting our nation, of forbidding the payment of taxes to Caesar, and of claiming to be Christ. A king. Well, the first two charges seem somewhat imprecise, but the third was a serious indictment of treason. 
It also raised Pilate's suspicions because the prisoner didn't look like a king. So what kind of king was he? His kingly rule, Jesus explained, was to bear witness to the truth. One of the striking features of the evangelist narrative is Pilate's repeated declaration of Jesus' innocence. After the preliminary hearing, for example, Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Next, after Herod had sent Jesus back to Pilate, Pilate affirmed, I have found no basis for your charges against him, neither has Herod. Then when the crowd demanded his death, Pilate responded to them, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. And then Pilate's own wife created a dramatic diversion by sending him a message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Her reason was that she had had a disturbing dream about him. And finally, Pilate took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. So on five distinct occasions, Pilate is recorded as having declared Jesus innocent. Now this, of course, was deliberate. While Christianity, at the time that the... uh, evangelists wrote up their Gospels. Christianity was an illegal religion and so it was vital to testify in Rome and other places that Jesus was innocent and the evangelists do that by quoting no less a person than Pontius Pilate, the procurator of the Roman province of Judea. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of the church is governed and sanctified, receive our prayers which we offer to you for the many different members of your holy church, so that everyone in his vocation and ministry may truly and devoutly serve you Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, and verses 4 to 16. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die. 
because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed him over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea, was an able administrator. Sometimes he was insensitive to Jewish scruples. In the Gospels, and we find that he vacillates, he wriggles, he is impaled on the horns of a dilemma. He is torn between justice and expediency. On the one hand, just as we saw, he knew Jesus was innocent, and he said so repeatedly. On the other hand, he feared the consequences if he did not yield to the mob. The evangelists depict him as wanting to release Jesus, Luke, and wanting to satisfy the crowd, Mark. But he found that he could not fulfill both wants simultaneously. And it's fascinating to watch him wriggling in his painful predicament. He tried four ways of avoiding a clear judgment. Firstly, he tried to shift the responsibility to someone else. Discovering that Jesus came from the Galilee and was therefore in Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod for trial. But Herod found no basis for the charges against Jesus. Secondly, he tried to do the right thing, release Jesus, but for the wrong reason, 
because it was the Passover custom to release a prisoner. Freeing Jesus, he was trying to do as an act of clemency instead of an act of justice. And then thirdly, he tried to satisfy the crowd with half measures, having Jesus beaten, flogged, instead of crucified. And fourthly, he tried to persuade the crowd of his integrity by washing his hands in public, even while contradicting it by sending Jesus to the cross. Each was a subterfuge, an attempt to avoid a commitment by compromise. Now, why was Pilate so weak? Why was he such a moral coward? Well, John tells us, the Jews kept shouting to him, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. That settled it. The issue was plain. He had to choose between two kings. And to his everlasting shame, he made the wrong choice. He chose to be a friend of Caesar and an enemy of all reason and justice. And his name has been immortalised in the clause of the creed that declares that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Let us pray. Merciful God, you have made all people and hate nothing that you have made, nor do you desire the death of sinners, but rather that they should be converted and live. Have mercy on the Jewish people and all who do not know you, or who deny the faith of Christ crucified. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt for your word, and bring them home to your fold, blessed Lord, so that we may all become one flock under one shepherd, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.